You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Psalm 27. If everybody would turn there. Do we have it on? We have it on the screen today. We probably will read it eventually. But Psalm, the Psalms are really a, a great place to not necessarily find great theological doctrine, you know, that you're going to live by. But you find great encouragement in the Psalms. You find great real life in the Psalms. And Psalm 27, if you've read it before, who wrote it? If you're going to guess David, you're probably right. right? <laughs> David wrote a lot of Psalms. Now, what, who was David? What was David like? When you think about the man who wrote these Psalms, and particularly wrote this Psalm in, in Psalm 27, you think about what kind of a person he was. Well, first of all, you would probably think, well, David was a king. <laughs> cool, right? He was a, in fact, he was a great king. Israel had a lot of kings that weren't so hot, but David was a good one. And what does scripture say about David? David is a man after God's own heart. Woo! Don't you wish he could say that about all of us in this room? I hope he does. But he was also a servant. He was also, I hate to even put this on his list, but he was also a sinner. Right? David had some interesting events happen in his life. And it's important to understand what kind of events happen in a person's life before they, after all those years of living, as David did, and all the things he went through, all the things he did, brought him to the point where he wrote Psalm 27. All his background, all of his, the events that took place in his life, all his victories, all his failures, and he had some big failures. He had a man killed. He was, he had sexual problems. <clears throat> but he was a great, great leader and trusted God with all of his heart. Now that seems like a conundrum in this world, doesn't it? To be on one side called a sinner, and on the other side, called a saint. <laughs> that's, that's pretty rare, and it only happens in the Christian life. It doesn't happen anywhere else. So when we look at Psalm 27, we need to first of all understand who is writing it, but also if he's writing it to me, and if he's writing it to you, then he also knows, right, that you and I have been through things in our life that have brought us to this point, to brought us to this day where we've gathered together to spend some time worshiping the Lord, to spend some time in his word. We all come from really interesting backgrounds. Some of them are more interesting than others. Some of them are a little odd. Some of them are rather uneventful. Some of them are full of of difficult things or tragedies or whatever it might be. But God has taken <clears throat> the hearts of all of you in this room and brought us here together to do something specific today. And Psalm 27 is almost like, how many of you know Psalm 23? How many of you can say it by heart? 23rd Psalm, right? I remember, this is odd, I know, in today's world, but when I was in school, that was, we had schools back then, okay? And, 
we were given a New Testament by the school, was delivered to the school to hand out to all the students. And we memorized the 23rd Psalm in our third grade class. Now, I don't know if that happens anymore today. It probably doesn't unless you're homeschooling. It doesn't. But there's something about the Psalms for me that we don't have to dig so deep to really find the meaning of what David is trying to say. And that's the cool part of the book of Psalms, and particularly Psalm 27. So you have, just like David has, I have, and you have some sort of a testimony. Back in the 70s, <coughs> 1970, for those of you that are, there was, a big, there was a big deal in churches for people to give personal testimonies. And I always really liked it because they would pick this person or that person, and that Sunday they would stand up and they would testify, okay? They would share what God had done for them, how they got saved, when they accepted Christ, and what he's been doing in their life since then. We don't, we don't do that as much anymore, but this, the Psalms is exactly that. It is a time for the writer to give a testimony of either how good God is, or how difficult his life is, or how God has taken him through the most tragic of circumstances, and he's come out the other side. That's the Psalms. So we don't go there for big theological studies. We go there to find encouragement, and we go there to find truth about ourselves. And that is where, in my mind, <clears throat> for me, the Christian life was where I really had to deal with myself. I had to confess who I was, confess what I'd done. I had to look really closely at my upbringing and what had happened in my life. And there's certain events in my life. I'm in my 70s, okay, but I can remember when I was four years old. That's about as far back as I can go, okay? And I remember my mom getting me ready for the first day of school. My birthday is in September, <coughs> so I wasn't even five yet when they stuck me in kindergarten. I was four, almost five, okay? So she prepped me, got me ready to, to make this, take this big adventure and to go to kindergarten. And she promised, and I never forgot this, she promised that she'd go with me. Now, I don't know why she said that, that was kind of dumb, but she promised that when we got there, she wouldn't leave. So the minute we got there, she left. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, it was, it was a classroom about half this size, a pretty big classroom, all along the side walls were giant closets. And these closets were hanging your coats and putting your lunches and all that. But you could walk into those closets and the doors were like huge and you could close them. So I immediately, when she left, I walked into that closet to hang my coat up, closed the door and I didn't come out. <laughs> and I did not come out until the teacher made me come out. But I say that because most, most of you probably don't think I'm very shy, but I was extremely shy back then, and I did not want to leave home and go to school. After a while, it was okay. I actually enjoyed at least half of my kindergarten year, right? 
And so those kind of events in your life are etched forever. And every one of you have the same type of events that have brought you to a certain point in your life to make you who you are. And that's, that's the cool part of being a believer, is to understand that we all kind of center around the same doctrinal beliefs. We know who Jesus is. We, we teach and learn about who he is. But we are all, as scripture calls us, I'm sorry, peculiar people. Okay? Because we, we're just odd. I'm sorry. We all have our little idiosyncrasies. We all have our little ideas of how the world should work. We all have what, it, what we think we should be doing in life. We know what we should be doing. We, we have these ideas about how I'm supposed to live my life, what kind of car I'm supposed to drive, what kind of house I'm going to buy. We have all these ideas in our minds that make us unique. And how in the world... I need to take my watch off because I, I promised I was only going to preach for 30 minutes today. So We haven't even read the scripture yet. But... <coughs> Keep going. As long as you say keep going, I, I will stay here. But um, <laughs> Scripture is very clear about how one God, through Christ, can take billions and literally billions throughout history of people that have lived on this earth. It's hard to even fathom. You know, it's hard enough to look at the sky and see millions and millions of stars and try to figure out how you would ever how those got there, or how you'd ever visit everyone. You couldn't. There have been billions of people that have lived on this earth. There are billions of people that are alive today. I mean, what is the population now? I don't know. I lost track at six billion, but is it eight? I don't know. America's only 300 and some, so we're kind of small, but 300 and some million. But for God to be able to, to look and, and take the life of every single individual person and invade their life in such a way that they personally know and understand who God is. Now that, to me, is a miracle. Because we all like to think that the other guy is odder than me, or more peculiar than you. But we're not. We are all in the same boat when it comes to understanding what God has for us. And when we read the Psalms, we see David, who we sometimes put on a pedestal, who reveals and confesses things to you and me in those Psalms that most of us probably have never done and sat down with anybody and shared all those personal feelings and those personal uh, sins and all the rest of them that we have committed throughout our life. And so the Psalms, to me, are miraculous because they give me a testimony from a man who doesn't proclaim to be perfect and yet who is, according to what we are told, God likes him, <laughs> right? And God likes us. And if you don't believe that, then there's a problem. But let's look at Psalm 27. I don't, do we have it on the screen or do we need, oh there it is, okay. Let's read that. We don't need to stand up and read it together. It's kind of long, but let me, <coughs> let me read it. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. 
Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his test. He will leave me high, or his tent. He will leave me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your ways, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, <clears throat> and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. He, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And I think that's it. <laughs> now that, just to read that is a sermon in itself. You don't really need me to add much to that to make it understandable as to what David is saying, right? You understand that. So I'm not going to concentrate and go verse by verse this morning because that would take forever. But there are, there, in the middle of the passage, it says this, starting in verse 7. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret place of his tabernacle. He shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. And then further down in verse 9, it says, Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. We don't want to, we never want to make God mad, right? That's not something we want to do. But you have been my help. I don't turn away from you. You've been my help. Do not leave me nor, nor forsake me, O God of my salvation, when my father and mother forsake me. Then the Lord will take care of me. I would imagine, and that's the verse that just shot out at me when I was looking at Psalm 27, was verse 10. Now, because David has given his, his testimony, then I had to think about my own life and what brought me to the Lord. What are the circumstances? I would imagine everyone in this room, if you looked at your journey from beginning to now, and what brought you to surrender to him? I would wager my life that some of that had to do with your parents. 
Now, that may have been a good thing from your parents, or it may have been a bad thing from your parents. That might have been a good experience for you to be raised in the family you were raised in, or it might have been a horrendous, troublesome, horrible time to be raised by those two people. So it's either one or the other. Either one, be the positive or the negative, influenced you and me to be who we are, whether we like it or not, right? It doesn't matter. My environment growing up, it couldn't help but affect me in a way that created who I was. God made me. I didn't necessarily recognize that, but as a child, I can remember sitting on the front porch at night. We lived in a little town south of Seattle, <coughs> out in the boonies. I always seem to live out in the boonies. That's just the way we are. But it was very dark at night. It was just a, a cool thing to sit out on that back little stoop. And I, I didn't know the Lord then when I was eight years old, but I would talk to him. Because my father never came home. He was never home. Worked all day and drank all night. And that was, that was my father's life. And so I would, I would sit on that stoop and pray, God, bring him home. See, after that many years, it still hurts. But, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> but I got to the point where I quit doing that because <laughs> it didn't work. To me, it, it didn't seem to work. So instead, I said, okay, God, <laughs> because I'm not getting at home uh, this, I'm an eight-year-old kid. Because I'm not getting at home what I need, I'm going to find it somewhere else. <laughs> and I did. I had, I had friends who had great parents, and so I would butt in on their, their life as much as I could to be around those parents that were cool. Right? Uh, any of you do that? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm odd. Or... I put my entire life into school. I loved school because I got to be away from home. So with that as the motivation, I decided that I better, if I was going to like school, I better do well in school. So I did. I worked hard and I did well in school all the way through high school. And all those years that I did that, it was like God had, I didn't realize it then, but he had begun to put into motion some things that were going to totally change who I was. Some of those people were Christians. I didn't pay much attention, didn't really care at that point. I just liked the fact that they were nice. They, they would take care of me. They would take me places with their kids. They'd let me go on the, on the trips with them occasionally. They were just great. I really appreciated those people that spent, and even some relatives, my aunt and uncle did the same thing, <clears throat> who spent time with me to, whether they knew it or not, turn me into something different than what I was getting at home. My father never came home. 
he divorced my mother when I was a teenager. And so he never was home. Never, never, ever did I have for one single day that I can remember a father figure in my life. That was my real dad. I had father figures, but not my real father. And so those sort of things, I think about what David went through. David's a cool guy, but we are all in God's sight. We are all cool guys. We're cool gals because he created us and wants us to somehow come back to him. And so it was, wow, the years went by and I, my whole life was, I thought was wonderful because I was never home as much, as little as possible so that I could pursue other things that I thought were positive. As a result, when I got married, <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you, I, I didn't really know how to be a husband. I didn't have the training to be a good husband or parent. And so, wow, the teaching lessons started immediately. Neither of us were Christians when we got married. We were married in 1969. I know you were not, you were not there, but in a small little wedding in Seattle. And we started out on a very difficult path for the first three years of our marriage, mainly because of me. But it wasn't until the 70s to me were really, really, it was a cool decade because that was the decade where in 72 when we became Christians and everything went whew, upset, everything, whew, I was faced with some real honesty of who I was. Now, I don't know if, if <clears throat> when you came to the Lord, I don't know if you had that experience. Everybody has a little different experience. Maybe you came to the Lord when you were young. Praise the Lord if you did, or if you did when you were a teenager or wherever. But every time a person makes that decision to follow him, something miraculous happens inside. And I'm not sure we talk about it enough, that when God gets a hold of a person, what really happens to him or her? It's dramatic. And it's like in the 70s, it was, again, testimonies were everywhere. And so the thing was, in a church, you would try to bring the most spectacular miraculous conversion and have them explain what had happened to them rather than just the normal way of being converted is you just you come to a point where you need the Lord and you accept him you don't have this this storybook thing that you're going to share in front of an entire church so it was like everybody wanted to hear the miraculous they wanted to hear the fantastic they wanted to hear how a guy came from the very bottom of the world in in every possible sin possible and miraculously was saved and those are cool. That happens. But a lot of times it happens a little more quietly, right? But it's still just as important. That, that phrase went up. My father was, I didn't tell you, my father was also abusive. That really helped the situation, right? He was physically abusive. And so when you're, some of you were probably raised in that too. I don't know. We don't always talk about it. But in that kind of a situation, when somebody is raised in that kind of environment, it's really hard, as much as you hate what you see going on 
from your parent. <clears throat> you find yourself when you're an adult almost doing the same thing, right? It happens. Fortunately, I never got to the point where I was physically abusive, and I praise God for that, and I never, I never want anything to, I didn't want anything to do with alcohol because I saw what it did to my dad, and I thought anything to do with alcohol was bad and evil, okay? And now we make wine. Yeah. I mean, it's just... <laughs> <coughs> So, so growth, growth sometimes changes your mind. <laughs> but scripture is very clear. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna push alcohol on anybody. Scripture is very clear. You hear certain things you never do with alcohol. <laughs> you don't get drunk. Okay, that's it. That's what scripture says. So don't do that. But because in certain circumstances, drunkenness leads to violence, and oftentimes leads to violence. But anyway. All that, all that aside, when I, when I made that decision on that front porch to take my, I, I didn't, nobody had shared the gospel with me yet, so I didn't know to say, oh, Jesus, I need you in my life. You're my savior. I, I understand the gospel, and I respond. I, I didn't have any of that. I just know that he was there. He seemed to be there, and I was talking to him. And so here was, here's what I was going to do. And I, and I did that. I took that energy and put it into something else. And fortunately, made something out of a bad situation. Now I, I know you can all relate to that with me. I know, because people are people, parents are parents. We all make mistakes. We're sinners. Don't like that word never did but I use it occasionally I don't like the word sinner I don't like to be called a sinner but that is what scripture calls me so I guess I have to shut up and obey but when we understand what it is inside of us what is it inside of us in that time before we come to the Lord what is it that makes us do those things it's not just I finally had to come to a point I couldn't strictly blame my dad my mom I couldn't blame you know, uh, relatives, I couldn't blame what I was hearing on the news, I couldn't blame any of that stuff for my own failures, my own sin. And when I, had, when I dealt with that, then it began to open my eyes to not only where I was, but also where the whole world was. My whole worldview literally changed overnight when Jesus came into my life. Because you look. We may look through, as Paul says, <laughs> we might look through a glass darkly right now. Someday we'll, we'll see him face to face and it'll be, woo, this, everything, I'll understand everything. I don't understand everything now. But I do understand more about who I am. And you probably do too. Because that's what Jesus does. So when you, when you bring that all together, the things that brought my wife and me together. It's like, oh my gosh, with those backgrounds, how in the world did we ever make it to being married 52 years? It's because when you have a central, what is it, foundation, I guess, to spring from, then all your differences don't matter as much 
when you have the same foundation. So sooner or later, you repent, you change, you, you know, accept responsibility, you realize that, you know, sin still plays a part, and all this sort of thing, to where you finally come to the point where you can say firmly, we will never be apart until one of us dies. <laughs> That's it. And when you think about your relationship with the Lord, you will never be apart from him ever, life or death. What does verse 1 say? Just jumping, jumping all around, I'm sorry. But verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Are you ever afraid? I was. I was afraid to go to school. Locked myself in a closet, figured everything would be just fine. We're afraid of things. We fear rejection. We fear being poor. We fear all these things that, that weigh in on us sometimes so heavily. I mean, when I went to school, you know, I, I oftentimes went to school with no lunch because we just didn't have stuff. <laughs> there was no free lunch program. There was, unless somebody gave you an apple out of their lunch bag, you didn't have anything to eat that day. So, I mean, there are, there are times when people go through things that's almost like living in a desert where you don't have a lot of stuff. That doesn't necessarily make it a bad time. It makes it a learning time, and it hopefully teaches us what it really means to go without. And so God, you know, God has blessed us over the years and has, wow, miraculously just kind of turned that around. But responsibility comes from both sides. When we have nothing, we have responsibility as well. When we have stuff, we have responsibility as well, right? What we do with that stuff. And when we don't have it, we go to him, we go to him and say, Lord, I, you know, give us this day our daily bread. Not our yearly bread. Give us our daily bread. Not too many of us have been in that situation to where we didn't know exactly where our next meal was coming from. Because we live in America. I mean, it's like, dude, this is a great place to live. But still, there is a, there's a desire that we have, whether we like it or not, to somehow understand what it is God wants me to do. And what it is and how it is God wants me to live. Francis Schaeffer, if you ever, he's a great author. He's from the, you know, the late 80s, <coughs> somewhere in there. He wrote a book called How Should We Then Live? <laughs> in other words, once we come to the Lord and understand who we are and understand who he is and acknowledge our sin before him and become a believer, what is it then we're supposed to do? How should we then live? Does our selfishness continue? Does our... Uh, the fact that we don't give anything, does that continue? Do, do, we, do we change the way we speak? Do we, does our mouth get better? Does our, do our habits get different? Do we not do certain things that we used to do? What is it that makes us and motivates us to not be what we used to be? So if, if there's nothing that I did to merit and nothing you did to merit his favor, to merit his grace, 
then once we come to him, who do we go to to find out then how to live? We go to him. Right? And it's, it's kind of right here. <laughs> and you could spend a lifetime, and most of us will, and never know everything that's in there. But there are things in there that are pretty obvious. David says in verse 4, and that's why I've titled this message about one thing that I desire. The one thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek. And that's the end of that particular sentence. I seek what? That I will seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Well, I don't live in a, the house of the Lord. I don't live, my house isn't the house of the Lord, and, it's, and neither is yours. And yet it's, it is your place where God deals with you and deals with me. Where we find ourselves. This one thing, David says, and he had everything. Was he poor? Mm -mm. Not at all. Was he a sinner? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Some of you can point to David and say, I never did the things he did. <laughs> and hopefully you, you and I never do. They, were, they weren't good. But in, you read Psalm 51. If we ever get to that point some summer where we're preaching through the Psalms, then we get to Psalm 51. Boy, read that. If you haven't read it before, and see David's testimony about what happened to him when he realized what a jerk he was. And some, we have the ability to be a jerk. <laughs> that was a poignant moment there. <laughs> did you do that on purpose, or did that thing just fall out of your lap? <laughs> Being a jerk. It's okay. But anyway, David, he's so open once he, once he makes that announcement about who he is. Every time you read a psalm that he writes from then on, it, he opens himself like a book to where, and yet who is in the line of Jesus is David. He's in his bloodline. Through David came, through his seed came the Savior. Whew! Didn't come through mine. Yours either. Through David to the line that brought finally in the book of Matthew, Jesus was born, the seed of David. And he was given the right to the throne of David. Right? It may not seem right now, as we live in 2021. God, it's funny to say 2021. Um, I'm still saying 19-something in my brain. But to conclude all this, we... You can go through every verse, and I would challenge you to do so, every verse of this psalm, all verses, and pick a word out of that verse that stands out to you. For example, I did it, and just to give you an example of what, what I did in verse, say in verse, in verse 9, it says, Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. You ever prayed that? <laughs> That's a good prayer. 
It's a good one to go to sleep with. But I put not forsaken or that God is not angry, that anger would not be something that God shows towards me or towards you. Every verse you can find a theme in there in this particular psalm where you can write a word that makes sense to you when you read that verse. So I challenge you to do it. Verse 14, the last verse of the passage. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And we've gone about 30 minutes, so I'm just going to say one more thing. I said in verse 14, when I wrote my word, I said, I will wait. (laughs) What does it mean to wait? Wait has a, a strange meaning in the English language. Wait can mean where I'm waiting for a bus. I'm waiting for someone to come home. I'm, I'm hopefully patiently sitting and waiting for someone to walk through that door, right? That part of wait. There's also waiting on someone, like a, a waiter in a restaurant, right? To serve somebody. So put either of those two together, that I'm going to be patient enough to wait to see not only where this, this is going in this life, where our country is going, where we, you know, wherever we live, where those, what, what is happening in the world around us, we, we, if we are waiting on God to do something, then we're patiently resting in the fact that I don't have the ability to change what's going on necessarily in the world, but I know that if I believe in my heart that God is in charge, then all that means I can be patient and wait. And I don't like to wait. <laughs> Do you? No. I don't necessarily like to wait on people either. It's not, that's not in the human nature to... Human nature, when captured by who we really are, sometimes can do some really awful things, can be very uh, unloving, can be very uh, untruthful, can hurt people, right? And I pray that none of us have ever hurt anybody so bad that we had to literally go to them and just beg for their forgiveness. But I bet you a lot of us have. I have. Because there's this, in the Christian life, and I think it's meant to be this way, there's this tension. Maybe if you and I wrote the book, we would say, okay, the minute... I accept Christ. Woo! I'm to have I'm in heaven right there. Everything everything is wonderful, sin is gone and I'm in glory and I'll be there forever. But it, unless you unless you accept the Lord on your deathbed, that doesn't happen. Not to put any unimportance on deathbed experiences because they're real. But when you when you're given more years, after you become a believer, you're giving more years to live on this earth, then, whoa, that's where the responsibility lies, to grow somehow. That not only am I growing, but somebody in my life is growing as well. We all, we all mess up. And I think where we mess up the most, and that constantly needs fixing, is in our own families, to where we have to wrestle with those that are close and and know you and me so well that we have to trust God to actually put an umbrella of protection over that small little group of people 
out of the billions in this earth, you have four, five, six, ten, twelve different people that you really associate with as a family. And so that's why the church is supposed to be a family. It doesn't matter how big or how small the local church is. I, have a ma I imagine that the first local churches were what could fit in somebody's house. <laughs> they didn't have a big church to go to. They had no cathedrals. They had no giant buildings. They had a small room to go to, to pray together, to fellowship, and to do the things in the book of Acts that they did when they first started this whole thing going. And that's been almost 2,000 years ago. Almost. That's a long time for the church to go through God knows what. All those centuries. When you look at church history, it's an eye-opener. So we are, we are making history here. We may be small. It doesn't matter. Small in whose eyes? I don't know. In the world's eyes, a church of 100 or less is considered dinky. I don't know. But so what? So what? We're still a body that gathers together from the massive body throughout the world. We're a tiny group that meets as often as we can because we need each other. So, I've gone over, I'm done. So I'm quitting right there. But Psalm 27 is like, there's nothing in it that's difficult to understand. Nothing. There's nothing in the 23rd Psalm that is difficult to understand. Absolutely nothing. Simple words. The Lord's Prayer, very simple. There's nothing weird to understand or hard to understand about what you're reading there. What we read in God's Word is not necessarily, we try to make it so theologically difficult that someone has to explain it to us constantly. Some things we don't quite understand, but when we read it, I guarantee you, when you read the book of John or you read out of the book of Genesis, you know what you're reading. You know it. I know it. And when the Psalms are so clear about how life is supposed to be and how life can be difficult at times, and in that difficulty comes growth. Tension brings growth. I don't, we, don't like, we don't like to hear that, but that kind of thing brings a change. Lethargy goes out the window. Easy life goes out the window. It's never meant to be that easy, but it's meant to be, it is meant to be fun. And I think where Christians sometimes fail, whoops, why not do that? Is we, don't, we don't make the Christian life fun. It is fun. It is an exciting life to live. It's not a drag. It's not boring. It's not where, oh gosh, I got to do this today. It's a, it's a whole new thing. And boy, if you haven't experienced it yet, today's the day to do it because it will change your life. Hmm. I don't think there's anything left to say. I did forget to show you my t-shirt today. Want to see it? You can't read it all, but my future son-in-law is in the Olympics. He is in the Paralympics. He lives in a wheelchair. But he is in Tokyo. He's gonna throw the javelin and hopefully win a gold medal. <laughs> so we're proud of him. 
Anyway, God bless you. Let's close in prayer. Let's stand together as we close. Father, I am so thankful for just the ability to speak and to read and to understand and to know and to deal with victories and deal with failures. I thank you, Lord, that we have such a great example of someone who did it all right, and that was Jesus, and then someone who did it almost right, David. But still, from those examples, we learn more about ourselves. So, Father, if that has happened today in our hearts in a special way, then I'm so glad. So, we give the rest of this time to you. We ask for a blessed day and help us to sing and rejoice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.